Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Today, I want to preach on the truth comes from above. Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Amen. The Gospel of John is decidedly and deliberately different from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the similar Gospels, the synoptic Gospels. John the Evangelist wants to give us a theological Gospel containing the highest possible Christology. So in the opening verse of his gospel, John tells us that this word is fully divine. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. While the other gospels give genealogies of Jesus and tell us that Jesus comes from Bethlehem and Nazareth, John is not interested in those particular biographical details. For John, the only genealogy of Jesus that really matters is that he is the Son of God who was in the beginning with God and that he is the truth of God who comes from heaven, that is, from above. Now, talking about how Christ is presented in the Gospel of John Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart says this. In much of the Gospel of John, it has been noted, eschatology becomes almost perfectly imminent. I'll pause there. What he means by that is in the Gospel of John, we see the age to come in the present. John is inviting us to look more deeply at who this one really is. So for example, in the garden of Gethsemane in John's gospel, there's no agony. There's simply Jesus saying, I am, and the armies are falling down. That's an eschatology that's arriving, that's imminent, we see it. In its pages of the gospel of John, Christ passes through history as a light that reveals all things for what they are. And it is our reaction to him our ability or inability to recognize light that shows us ourselves. To have seen him is to have seen the Father. And so to reject him is to claim the devil as one's father instead. Our hearts are laid bare. The deepest decisions of our secret selves are brought out into the open and we are exposed for what we are, what we have made ourselves. 
In John's gospel and in Paul's epistles, especially epistles like Ephesians and Colossians, we are given a truly lofty, transcendent Christianity. That is, the truth that comes from above. If God is to be known, it is because God takes the initiative to make himself known. So, in the beginning was the logos, the word, God's understanding of God's self, the logic of God, the reason of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, dwelt among us, moved among us, joined us. And John says, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then he goes on and he says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart, he has made God known. The doctrine of the deity of Christ, that is that we confess that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. Not a mix, not a, not a hybrid, not part man, part God. No, fully God and fully human. Two natures, one person. Two natures without confusion or separation in one person. Now, the reason we confess the deity of Christ, the purpose of the doctrine of the deity of Christ is not, it is not, so that we can say, oh, I know what God is. We all know what God is. I know what God is, and Jesus is that. No, that is the exact opposite. We don't say, I know what God is, and Jesus is like that, because we don't know what God is like until God is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. The truth comes from above. God must come to us in the light of revelation or we will just remain in the dark. We won't, we'll have ideas about God, but they will be incorrect. In theology, we cannot start with the abstract idea of God and then work it out from there. I mean, people do that, but that's going to always go astray. If we do that, we end up with our own preferences, prejudices, and projections imagined as God. What we need to do instead is begin and end with Jesus Christ. Remember, the Bible ends with Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Revelation 22, 13. The Bible is not the alpha and omega revelation of God. It's not the beginning and end revelation of God. It's Jesus Christ. And what the Bible does is point us to the one who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and last of the revelation of who God is. Now, there is a name for this, understand, this, this approach to understanding God, and it's called Christianity. <laughs> this is what Christianity is. It is, at its heart, the confession that God is revealed to us only perfectly and fully in Jesus Christ. And God is revealed to us in Jesus Christ to save us. Remember when Nicodemus 
came to Jesus. He comes by night. Remember Nicodemus? He was big wig teacher of the Pharisees, among the Pharisees. He was their leading light, their most famous scholar. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because, well, I, I suppose there, there was a reason that he didn't want to necessarily be seen publicly coming to see this Galilean prophet. But he comes mostly because he's irresistibly drawn. He can't not come. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And in effect, Nicodemus says, I know you're from God. I mean, you couldn't do what you're, you're doing if you weren't. But, but this is not what I was expecting. I know you come from God, but what you're bringing is not what I was expecting. And Jesus says to him, well, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Some, some of the translations is born again, and that's, it's more famously known as that, born again. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. It actually literally says born from above. It can mean again, but it literally says from above. And that's why it's translated in the NRSV. And so, so when, when Nicodemus is expressing some confusion, yes, recognizing that Jesus must come from God, but it's not what he was expecting Messiah to bring. Jesus says, well, here's the, here's the deal, Nick. Unless you're born from above, you will not be able to perceive the kingdom, even though it's here, it's arriving, it's coming, it's happening right now. Unless you're born from above, you'll never see it. You won't perceive it. You won't comprehend it. You won't recognize it. So unless we're born from above, we'll never be able to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that, of the heavens, the kingdom that comes from heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And it's coming, but unless we're born from above, we don't recognize it. We'll keep thinking, if, unless we're born from above, we'll keep thinking that the kingdom of God is just sort of a spiritual, religious, little better version of the kingdoms of this world. So we know about the kingdoms, the nations of this world. We know what they are and what kind of what they're like. And unless we're born from above, unless we take it from the top and rethink everything, unless we're born again, we will think that the kingdom of God is it's basically like one of those governments of this world that is simply better and maybe more spiritual, more religious, more Christian, whatever. That's not true. <laughs> well, I, I'm on, I don't want to be too vague. don't want to be too on point either. I'm trying to thread the needle here. It's a, there's a temptation to think, if, I can just, if we can just get our team, if we can just get our team, if we can just get our team in the positions of political power, then God's will can be done. You know, it's probably not an exaggeration to say that the difference between the kingdom of God and the politics of this world is roughly the difference between heaven and hell. Okay, so it's not how the kingdom comes and it will never come that way. Again, John 3, 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who is from heaven is above all. 
If the world is to be saved, and it is to be saved because God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If the world is to be saved, it cannot be saved by one who comes from below because they're stuck in the mess with us. The savior of the world cannot be one who needs saving himself. To be from below is to be stuck in the mess that we're all in. If the world's to be saved, it has to be saved by one that comes from above. This is why Jesus never joined any of the religious political movements of his day. They were about, there were options, people were deeply committed to them, often for very good and sincere reasons, at least from their estimation, but Jesus never joined any of them. For example, Jesus did not join the moralistic reform movement of the Pharisees, with which he would have certain sympathies. That movement would come closest to what Jesus is about, but not really very close. You know, the Pharisees, it was a, it was a movement that they were trying to reform Israel. It, it had started 160 years earlier as a way to resist the Jewish people being just absorbed into the Hellenistic world and losing their distinction as the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it began as, as a movement that just wants to maintain fidelity with God. But along the way, as these kind of movements often do, they, they kind of, they'd morphed into the morality police, the doctrine police. They were convinced that what was wrong with the world was everybody else. And so they were going around trying to uh, police everybody else. And Jesus doesn't join that movement. Neither did Jesus join the conservative establishment of the Sadducees. These were the people that, uh, they're the most conservative of the groups. They're the ones that are based on the, in the temple. These are the chief priests. These are the elders, the Sadducees, the temple elite. Very conservative movement. And Jesus doesn't come from that group and he doesn't attempt to join that group. Neither did Jesus join the revolutionary movement of the zealots. Now, one of his 12 disciples that Jesus chose came from, had been in that movement, but then he becomes a follower of Jesus. The zealots were, they were a revolutionary movement who wanted to bring about God's purpose and the liberation of Israel through violent means. And so they were engaged in guerrilla tactics and they would assassinate Romans and Jewish collaborators with Rome. Jesus doesn't join that group because his movement comes without violence. So the zealots are out there and, they've got, and they're convinced they're right, but Jesus doesn't join them. And Jesus didn't join the separatist escapist movement of the Essenes. This, this is a group of people that just said, you know, the whole thing's a mess. We're just gonna go out and live by the Dead Sea and start our own community, we'll just start all over again. Refound Israel and prepare for the end of the world. They're an apocalyptic sect. And that happens again and again. You'll see these groups that finally decide that, that no one's any good and they, they're gonna refound the church and prepare for Armageddon. It happened. And Jesus doesn't join the Essenes. He doesn't join. Why not? I call upon Soren Kierkegaard to help us understand this. He says, Christ was crucified because he would have nothing to do with the crowd, even though he addressed himself to all. 
He did not want to form a party, an interest group, a mass movement, but he wanted to be what he was, the truth, which is related to the single individual. The crowd is untruth. Well, rock on, Soren Kierkegaard. The truth comes from above. The crowd is untruth. Or as my dad used to say it, the majority is almost always wrong. Because the crowd forms around a vilified scapegoat. The us crowd must have a vilified them. And they coalesce around their shared animosity toward the scapegoat, the them. And that's not truth. That's untruth. Christianity without transcendence degenerates into politics. Christianity that isn't from above, that doesn't insist upon the utter uniqueness of Christ, that this is not just some good teacher. This is very God of very God. This is the word of God that became flesh. Without that, Christianity degenerates into politics. Now, politics, as the necessary administration of the polis, somebody's got to run the polis. Somebody's got to try to, you know, organize how we're going to do life together. Politics must be attended to. But it's not Christianity. It must be attended to. You got to do it. We have to organize. We can't have just anarchy. But it's not Christianity. It's just not. The truth does not come from the left or right. It comes from above. Oh, I came here to say that today. The truth does not come from the left or right. It comes from above. Now, the political left or the political right may occasionally align with some aspects of truth. It happens. But it's not where truth originates from or resides. The truth comes from above. Yeah, at any given moment, some group on the political left or political right may just happen by mostly sheer luck, I guess, to align with the truth. But it's not where truth originates from and it's not where truth resides. The truth comes from above because political parties are not concerned with truth. <laughs> they are concerned with power. They don't exist without power. They exist for power. Their whole aim is to be in power. That's not where truth resides. The truth comes from above, not from controlling the Senate or something like that. The truth comes from above. The very notion that a political party could embody the truth of God is stunningly naive. You have to try, you have to, try to be that naive that somehow the truth of God can be embodied in a political party. Christ alone is the perfect truth of God. Christ alone is perfect theology. Christ alone is perfect politics. The problem is we end up wagging the dog. The problem with the Christian left and the Christian right is that inevitably the political tail ends up wagging the Christian dog. The problem with the Christian left and the Christian right is that in both of these phenomenons, Christian gets reduced to adjective duty and service to the all-important political noun. What really matters is left or right. And then Christ is 
trotted out as a mascot or a pitch man to endorse the policies of a political party in pursuit of power. I'm just telling the truth, that's all. It comes from above. When your priority is political power, the truth first becomes malleable and then eventually becomes disposable. Because what matters is the power, not the truth. The truth does not come from left or right. The truth comes from above. Say amen to that. All right, so I need to tell a story. Lest you not get the point. My entrance into a life of discipleship was through a revelation of Jesus Christ graciously given to me by God on November 9th, 1974, when I was 15 years old. This occurred in the context of the Jesus movement, also known as the Jesus Revolution. I keep a Time magazine in my study from that era. There you see a picture of it. The Jesus Revolution. That was Time Magazine reporting on the Jesus movement of the 1970s, which is my spiritual uh, ground that I grew up out of. It's my real tradition. It's funny to think of the Jesus movement as a tradition, but it was of sorts. I keep that Time Magazine in my study to remind me that I am a Jesus freak and I have no aspiration to be anything other than a Jesus freak. That's it. Now, some people don't like the term Jesus freak because they think it's kind of derisive. Well, yeah, that's how it was intended originally. It's the same thing with the word Christian. Christian, Christians didn't, the original Christians didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians in a derisive way because they didn't follow Caesar. They, they, they were going around, everybody else saying Caesar is Lord and the, these Jesus people are saying Christ is Lord. And so they began to call them Christians. Christians, you're just Christ, 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 Christ. You're just crazy about Christ. And it was, it was kind of a derisive term, but it stuck. It's like the Methodists, you know. They were called Methodists by their critics. Usually don't get the name, your, your movement doesn't get the name itself. It gets named by its critics. And so, you know, in the 70s, you know, young people are coming to Jesus and man, we were, we're crazy for Jesus. It's all we ever talked about, it seems like, you know, it's, it just defined all of our being. And people would say, you're like, a, you're like a Jesus freak. And we would say, kind of, you might be right. I think so. So I keep that Time Magazine of the Jesus Revolution in my study to remind me where I come from that I am a Jesus freak and I aspire to be nothing other than that. Now, the Jesus movement was definitely, I was there, I know. It was definitely apolitical. We didn't care about politics, we just didn't. We knew that Jesus was way too revolutionary for any political party to handle. We knew that, I mean, we just, we knew that. We saw Christianity as revolutionary and as a revolutionary movement, it was incompatible with power hungry politics. 
I mean, you can't assimilate the Sermon on the Mount with power politics. (laughs) They don't work. Oh, you can pretend, but you know it doesn't work. So that's where I come from. But that began to change in the 80s. By the 80s, the Jesus movement was over as a phenomenon of the spirit. But, you know, the people remained. I mean, some of them did anyway. Some of us stuck around, (laughs) continued to follow Jesus, that, that were drawn into following Jesus in the Jesus movement. By the time we're in the 80s, the movement itself is over, but a lot of the Christians are still around. And in the 80s, there began to be a drift. Again, I'm I'm talking, I didn't read this in a book, you understand? I can write this book. I lived through it. I have written about it, some of my books. In the 80s, there began to be a drift away from revolutionary Christianity toward a politicized Christianity. And it was a big mistake. I mean, we're talking about, this this is the rise of, you know, things like the moral majority and the Christian coalition and, you know, that thing. It was a big mistake. It was a huge mistake. It was a disaster. And I went along for the ride. I mean, I did. I went along for the ride because I didn't know better. I mean, I should have known better, but I didn't. I mean, I just assumed that the people that were leading this knew what they were talking about. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you, you were in retrospect, you know, they didn't have a clue what they were talking about when it came to Jesus and what the kingdom of God is like. But we went along for the ride. I won't put it on you. I went along for the ride. And so, you know, we had, we had senators, at least two senators, I remember, and congressional representatives. They would come to see us because they're interested in you if you have a big church. If you have a little church, they're not going to come see you. If you've got a big church, they'll come see you and they'll flatter you and they'll ask if they can speak a few words, say a few words on Sunday morning. And I let them because I thought it was cool. The senator's coming to my church. And I'd let them say a few words. And uh, we handed out those voter guides and stuff like that. October 2004. That was, you know, in the throes of another. What's that word? It means every four years. Quadlinarial, quad. quad the four-year madness that falls upon America. Quadrennial. Yeah, the quadrennial madness that falls upon Except now it's permanent, it seems. We need to be institutionalized. We've lost our mind. But anyway, this was, this was 2004. And there was going to be a presidential rally in St. Joseph. And the vice president was going to be there and speak. And I was invited to give the invocation, offer a prayer. Now I was invited not because I was spiritual (laughs) or theologically astute, but because I had a big church. (laughs) So, So they invited me and I said, yes, okay. I'll be happy to do it. Actually, I didn't say right away. I did delay, I did think about it, but then I, after much thought I, managed to make the wrong decision. And I said, (laughs) I'll do it. So I showed up, you know, you got the secret services checking me out and he looks good. And uh, then I meet the vice president. We have a little chat. Civic Arena was full of people. Some of you might've been there. 
we go out on a stage. And I'm sitting on a stage with the vice president and a bunch of other politicians. I'm just sitting there. It's kind of right in the center because you know, I'm sitting right here. And there's a podium. I'm sitting here. I'm just sitting. Things are happening. And Jesus spoke to me. He said, Brian, Brian, why are you politicizing me? I said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're politicizing. It was my Damascus Road moment. Then it came my moment, my time to offer the invocation, which, you know, the intent was. You can say whatever you want to say about it. I was there. I know what it's really about. It was for me to infer God's own blessing upon this particular political enterprise. But Jesus had just spoken to me and said, Brian, Brian, why are you politicizing me? Ooh, that's awkward. So I went up, it was time, you know, I went up and I just stood at the podium for a little bit. If you'd been there, you would have seen there was just a moment of silence. And I know all, all, the, all the power brokers behind me are like, come on, come on, son, come on, come on. We got things to do. Well, the reason I was silent was I was repenting. I was praying silently. I said, Jesus, forgive me. I'll never do this again. And then I prayed the most innocuous prayer I could come up with. Just kind of vague and, you know, trying to say, trying to say nothing in prayer. And then I left. When, I'm, when I say I left, I mean, I was supposed to go back and sit down. I'd left. I'd left. I left the arena. I left. And when I say I left, I mean, I left that whole world behind. Left behind. Yes, yes. It was left behind. <laughs> left behind. And I never went back and I'm never going back. Still get invitations, you know, to do things. and t- No, no. National Prayer Breakfast, president's going to be there. I say, I think, and I get it from both teams. I get it from both the elephants and the Democrats, so it's not a partisan thing. They both invite me. And I just think breakfast with Caesar is a bad idea. I don't do it. <clears throat> so I, I walked away from that, and I've never gone back, and I never will go back because I'm a Jesus freak. Not a political operative serving the interests of a Partisan political cause. When preachers do that, you can feel the falseness. The truth comes from above. It doesn't come from the left or right. The left or right may stumble into the truth now and then. You know, broken clocks right twice a day sort of thing. But the truth comes from above, not from the left or right. And so I'm only, I'm only going to serve and preach and proclaim the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who comes from above. Amen. Amen. And I invite you to come to the way and the truth and the life of Jesus Christ, to participate in his life because that's why he took on humanity that he might, that we might partake in his divinity, that we might partake of the divine nature. 
The cup of blessing which we bless is our participation in the blood of Christ and the bread which we break is our participation in the body of Christ. The truth comes from above. It is the bread of heaven. And I invite you to stand with me now and prepare to come to this table and partake of the truth that comes from above, the life that comes from above, the bread of heaven that is Jesus Christ. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the pardon of the Lord. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.